The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It, it's really astonishing that there's not been a, a broader government effort to get to the bottom of what threat these pose to, to Americans. I'm Seraphine Tanani, legal fellow of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 19, 2023. In the wake of September 11, 2001, federal law enforcement agencies were caught flat-footed when they realized that they'd had the intel to prevent the attack on the homeland but they failed to connect those dots. Fusion centers were born out of an abundance of caution to share and streamline counterterrorism information between the federal level and state and local levels. Since then, the Department of Homeland Security has supported the development of a national network of 80 fusion centers across the United States. And while its principal goal initially was to disseminate counterterrorism intel from the state and local levels, it's now expanded to include the sharing of intelligence regarding crimes or hazards more broadly. Last month, the Brennan Center released a report entitled Ending Fusion Center Abuses, explaining how Fusion Center's domestic intelligence model has undermined Americans' privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties. I sat down with Michael German, a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, who co-authored the report, as well as Thomas Warwick, a non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security Forward Defense Practice at the Atlantic Council. Both Mike and Tom individually spent over a decade working in federal law enforcement agencies. Mike served as an FBI special agent for 16 years, where he specialized in domestic terrorism and covert operations. And Tom worked at the Department of Homeland Security for 12 years, most notably as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism Policy. They discussed how fusion centers were conceived, where they've excelled as intelligence centers, and where they've abused their powers. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 19th, Lifting the Veil on Fusion Centers. So I have to be honest here and begin by acknowledging that I hadn't heard about fusion centers until I watched your segment, Mike, on the PBS NewsHour. Mike, I'll begin with you. Can you explain to us what are fusion centers, you know, including their inception story, and what are they trying to achieve here? I'll try not to feel a blow to the efficacy of my advocacy because I started writing about fusion centers in 2007. Uh, I had just left the FBI in 2004 and uh, went to work at the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office where I was working on national security policies and saw a bill that was providing $300 million to aid in the development of a national network of intelligence fusion centers. And I had never heard of this concept, and I was only three years out of federal law enforcement. So it alarmed me that this network of 
domestic intelligence hubs was being built across the country with very little public discussion. We produced a report that highlighted a number of issues with the way that fusion centers were being developed. One of the big problems is who is actually in control of these institutions because they're set up as state, local, and regional entities, but they receive significant federal funding, but also access to federal counterterrorism and intelligence networks and and databases. Uh, They also house FBI and Department of Homeland Security analysts and uh, law enforcement officers. They include not just law enforcement, but other government personnel from state and local agencies, uh, particularly emergency response and public health. Uh, And they also include the National Guard oftentimes. So they have some uh, access to military intelligence and they include private sector entities that are are poorly defined in, in the guidelines that the federal government has produced and basically seems up to whoever is managing that a particular fusion center, what companies or private entities might get incorporated into fusion center operations and receive fusion center reports. So domestic intelligence collection has long been a, a politically fraught activity that often results in abuses. So the idea of establishing these very lightly regulated institutions in in every neighborhood across the United States has raised significant concerns. And unfortunately, those concerns have been borne out uh, through many examples of civil rights and privacy violations, as well as security vulnerabilities. Thanks, Mike. Tom, did you want to add anything? Uh, Yeah. So um, I come at this from obviously a different perspective. I uh, was a a lawyer by training and experience, served in the State Department for 10 years, and then moved over to the Department of Homeland Security from 2007 until uh, June of 2019 uh, when I joined the Atlantic Council. Uh, And so at DHS, I was the senior career official on counterterrorism policy at DHS headquarters title was Deputy Assistant Secretary during that time period. Uh, So we actually relied on the work of fusion centers to help keep Americans safe. And while Mike makes a number of really valid and important points in his excellent report, folks should appreciate that fusion centers, by and large, reflect the communities that operate them. Uh, They are, as Mike said, actually run by state and local law enforcement and most of their personnel are from state and local law enforcement who've been seconded there to try to fill a gap that was created, uh, or at least appreciated, uh, after the September 11 terrorist attack in New York City and and against the Pentagon. What many people came away with from the 9-11 Commission's report was a very accurate sense that the dots had not been connected and that it was therefore important for the country as a whole to do a much better job of understanding the terrorist threat, understanding terrorist networks and how they worked, and do a better job of of bringing them to the attention of investigators, whether it's the FBI at the federal level or state and local law enforcement, 
to try to have these networks disrupted before they could carry out terrorist attacks. But that was right after 9-11. Since then, fusion centers have changed somewhat in their function. They still have counterterrorism analysis responsibilities. But uh, in much of the country, the greater threat right now is from uh, you know, networks importing drugs into the United States, other kinds of, of criminal organizations rather than just terrorists. And the fusion centers have uh, found themselves useful. I have to say, as Mike accurately says in his report, they're not panaceas. They're not magic cures. They're not, you know, what you see on, on you know, some of the police procedural shows like NCIS. They tend to be much more uh, like uh, a number of people in cube farms sitting looking at computer screens trying to make sense of a very complicated picture of threats against a, a state or locality. And these are really uh, uh, local and, and in some cases national and other police and the people who support them trying to make sense of what are the threats to our community. There have been some problems, many of which Mike identifies, and the real challenge is in solving those problems. But the fusion centers serve a useful purpose. We do, however, need to make sure they have proper oversight, proper funding, that they're clear on what their mission is, uh, and that we really do see them as taking advantage of the ability to connect the dots so that we can make our country safe and secure. So let me tease that out a little bit. Their mission. What is their mission? Or do they share a mission? Because I know there are uh, several dozens of them in the United States. Are they all working collectively under one mission? Or does each fusion center have its own objective? So there are about 50 of them across the country. Many of them are run at the state level. Uh, but in some cases, uh, especially where you have large cities, they tend to be run by a, a city or a sort of regional outfit. Um, the place where you think there would be a fusion center, New York City, actually, uh, the New York City Police Department runs something that's not a fusion center, but that serves the same purpose of bringing different professions and specialties under one roof for the purpose of, of you know, combining what people know to try to understand uh, terrorist threats. Uh, and New York City has had a number of terrorist attacks that have been successful, nothing on the scale of 9-11, and the fusion centers have actually uh, helped make that possible. But at the same time, the goal of these centers is to prevent terrorism uh, and crime as much as it is to to try to to you know, play detective in, in solving crimes that have already occurred. And I would just add that the breadth of the missions that these centers claim is part of the problem. Uh, when the federal government was investing in these fusion centers, they were promoting them as counterterrorism intelligence networks, but were having difficulty uh, getting buy-in from the states because they oftentimes didn't feel that terrorism justified the investment of resources from the state and regional level. So they moved to an all crimes mission statement and then eventually to attract non-law enforcement entity, what they call all hazards. And as, as I said, domestic intelligence is, is problematic in, in a democratic country. <laughs> 
writ large, no matter who's doing it. But when you establish an entity whose mission is so broad and put it in a network where there are 80 of these centers across the country, approximately, uh, the numbers change over time. And each of them claiming a different mission of different breaths, all connected to the same network, results in a, a lot of information being collected and disseminated that really law enforcement has no business at obtaining. And the privacy of American citizens engaging in activities that don't raise any suspicion of criminal activity are being collected and disseminated throughout the country. And, and again, because of the breadth of, of the mission and the diversity of personnel being invited to participate in these operations, you often have information being collected straight off the, the cesspools of, of social media and, and being disseminated through this network as threat warnings uh, that it, there's no regulator to remove misinformation or disinformation that's being spread through the system. So the network becomes polluted with, with bad information that isn't helpful to anyone and information that violates the privacy of, and civil rights of, of individuals be, who, who are the targets of these collection efforts. So, Seraphine, it, it, let me take January 6th as an example. Sure. This, this is a case that we know a great deal about because there has been an enormous amount of work done after the fact to understand what went wrong and what was the set of failures uh, that allowed this attack to proceed without the Capitol Police being ready for it. Uh, the agencies involved had, have conducted uh, after-action reviews. Uh, journalists have done a great job at bringing to the fore uh, a lot of the facts that that you know were not known by everybody at the time. A number of think tanks and nonprofits, including I have to say the Atlantic Council where I work, uh, uh, have done an enormous amount of work trying to understand the nature of what the threat was on January sixth and and who knew about it. This is a classic example where the dots were out there. the The information was on social media. Uh, in both public postings and in private fora that should have made it very clear that there was the likelihood of uh, violence at the Capitol on January 6th in an effort to stop uh, the uh, Congress from the lawful counting of the electoral votes. And, you know, the, the challenge that uh, we had had on September 11, 2001 and on January 6th 2021 was in putting together the picture in a way that would allow those whose responsibility it was to protect, in this case, the U.S. Capitol, to marshal the necessary resources to, to prevent the attack. Uh, in this case, there was an ample body of information on social media. Uh, there was an ample body of information, additionally, from confidential sources that law enforcement had. And what was not happening was to have all this information come together in a way that was, was sufficient to compel the people who could have stopped this, in this case, primarily the U.S. Capitol Police, uh, from marshalling the resources that would have allowed them to do that. 
In theory, obviously it didn't work on January 6th. In theory, that's the kind of role that a fusion center ought to play. That does require an awareness of social media. Uh, it does require following proper constitutional procedures that are put in place uh, to protect privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties. And so, for example, the law enforcement does not have the authority to penetrate uh, telephone communications unless it goes and obtains a warrant under established procedures. There are a whole host of measures that are in place. And then the question is, what is done with this information? What you would like to have seen in order to have prevented the attack on the U.S. Capitol was for the right people in the right place to make the connections, reach the conclusion of what was going to happen if protesters reached the Capitol, and then the Capitol Police should have been there in sufficient presence to deny them entry into the building. It's, you know, one of those kinds of intelligence failures, uh, like 9-11, that gets analyzed in extraordinary detail. The kinds of, of crimes and incidents that most fusion centers have to deal with never rise to the level of the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. But the question is how we balance as a society the kinds of tools and resources and information that we want law enforcement to have against the very valid privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties concerns that people ought to be protected uh, especially for everything that falls below the threshold of violence. And that turns out to be the line that needs to be watched the most closely. Acts of violence are illegal. Free speech is constitutionally protected. There's a tiny gray area in between, and that's certainly worth talking about. But there's a clear distinction that law enforcement draws, whether you're talking about fusion centers or otherwise, between acts of violence that are the subject of investigations, arrests, and prosecutions, and constitutionally protected speech. And most of the time, that's the distinction that everyone in law enforcement ought to be following uh, on, you know, cops on the beat, fusion centers, the FBI, DHS, state and local governments. That really needs to be the basis of everything from our training to our practice. And to that point, Tom, I, I think that's fair. This line drawing exercise between what is going to look like a First Amendment protest and we can leave that alone versus, you know, this probably will lead to violence and we should keep an eye on it. And I'm wondering, I understand that fusion centers seem to be quite stratified. They're not under one mission, but what are the factors that they're considering when drawing this line between, you know, this is First Amendment protected and this is probably going to lead to violence? So, for example, we have the reasonable suspicion standard that law enforcement must meet before they can collect and maintain information on individuals. You know, is that the standard that fusion centers are using as well when they're collecting and disseminating their intelligence reports to higher ups? Uh, why don't we go to you, Mike, for that? Thanks for this question. And, and I, I think what January 6th highlights is the failure of the intelligence model that was created after 9-11 with this concept of balancing privacy and civil liberties against security. 
in my experience as an FBI agent, particularly working undercover in domestic terrorism investigations, convinces me that that this is a flawed model. And and I think January 6th proves it, where, it, as, as Thomas had said, initially when talking about 9-11 and, and the conceptual creation of fusion centers, this idea that the problem was not connecting the dots. And what the fusion centers and much of the intelligence that DHS and the, and the FBI have engaged in by reducing the threshold for collection. So you mentioned the reasonable suspicion requirement that had long been part of uh, law enforcement, criminal intelligence regulations, and also the FBI's internal guidelines were were diluted significantly. And what that created was the collection of lots more dots. And the problem was never a lack of dots, right? The 9-11 Commission report makes very clear over more than 400 pages that the FBI, CIA, and NSA had a tremendous amount of intelligence for warning of the plot. It was that the proper policymakers chose not to pay attention to those dots. And what the Senate uh, investigation of 9-11 said is because those important pieces of information were lost in the vast streams of intelligence being collected through the foreign intelligence networks. So those vast streams have turned into raging rivers and, and vast oceans of data that is now being collected by these agencies and reported through these networks so much that that nobody can can process all this information that's coming in worse because the the training and and uh, capabilities of individual fusion centers across the country is so lax what's being put into this system is often nonsense. And you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, you can look at information that's been obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests, but more often through leaks, where just recently in 2020, there was a massive leak of gigabytes of law enforcement data going back 20 years. They included a lot of these fusion center reports caused by a security vulnerability in a contractor. And again, it shows not just that the, the data that was released shows that a lot of the information that, that these fusion centers were producing was misinformation, disinformation information that was uh, promoting spurious threats that was about what the far left organizations and protest groups were doing that was coming from far right websites, but then uh, stamped with an, a fusion center uh, logo and passed into the intelligence network. So all this information is is basically making it harder for policymakers to understand what's really going on and and distracting them from real threats. So what we saw during the the Black Lives Matter riots was, was a tremendous amount of fusion center reporting on spurious threats being reported, uh, that it, it, uh, Antifa was starting wildfires in the West, that Antifa was uh, planning a vehicle-borne explosive device against National Guard people in Minnesota. Uh, it just stuff that, that was clearly not based on reliable evidence, and, and that was misdirecting law enforcement resources. And, you know, Coming to January 6th, you know, we have a lot of 
self-serving reporting after the fact that that fusion centers had been warning about uh, far-right violence at the Capitol on January 6th. And I'm sure some of that is true. But again, whether whether that was just amidst a, a, a lot of reporting about groups that weren't involved in that violence is, is the, the broader question. But part of the reason I think policymakers didn't pay attention to it is because they had become inured to not paying attention to fusion center reports because they were so often either something that that wasn't accurate or wasn't helpful. And and that's the key point that that after 9-11, there was this concept that more intelligence was better. But if that intelligence is untimely, if it's erroneous, if it's uh, collected from untrustworthy sources, it, it isn't trusted by the policymakers that that are, are supposed to act based on it. So it, it's a flawed methodology that, that has proven, again, through these leaks to produce an awful lot of, of privacy and civil rights violations and not significant evidence that it does anything to achieve its counterterrorism purpose, uh, much less its, its criminal justice purpose. I, I mean, one of the things that coming out of law enforcement uh, and and seeing these changes, I, I assumed that the creation of these intelligence networks would would help in finding and solving more crime just by accident. That they're going out to look for terrorists and serious criminals, but because they're collecting so much information, it's easier to solve other crimes. But in fact, we've seen crime clearance rates go down over the last twenty years, and particularly in serious crimes like murder, where the the clearance rate is is just over 50%. So half the murders in the country continue to go unsolved, even as we've built this national network of, of intelligence centers that don't show demonstrated efficacy in assisting in, in crime investigations. And it just relies on anecdotal stories from people in the network saying, yeah, we find it helpful. Well, that's not really how it works. We've created a situation where we've built this very this network that collects information about American citizens in their own communities and compiles it so it's one-stop shopping for hostile actors who want to use that information for, for bad purposes. So if hacktivists were able to get this type of information, I think it's it's silly to assume that hostile foreign nations aren't also getting it. And it, it's really astonishing that there's not been a, a broader government effort to get to the bottom of what threat these pose to, to Americans. Well, and of course, Seraphine, the irony is almost all of this information is in the hands of the private sector and comes from, you know, social media and other companies that people provide this information to voluntarily. Uh, uh, any data repository then becomes obviously uh, uh, a target of interest to foreign actors. And, you know, we need to look to private companies as well as to the government to do a better job of protecting our personal information. Tom, I, I do want to stay there for a second because I I acknowledge that that's, that is troubling. And even taking it a step back for a second, why are we mixing private companies into the fusion center ecosystem? What value do they add? 
Yeah, that actually is a, a mistaken perspective. Uh, I think people may come away from Mike's report with a mistaken understanding of, of what role these companies serve. Uh, there are two different things going on, or at least two. Actually, there are more than that. The first is that when when mall operators or sporting venues uh, or other private groups organize public events that have a, a security concern or nexus. I mean, the classic example being the Super Bowl, where the NFL has uh, you know, an extremely active security component to it to make sure that people are protected when they're at games. You know, the state and local government, uh, as well as federal authorities, often liaise with these private entities to try to help protect their venues. Uh, and one of the examples in Mike's report was, uh, you know, an oil pipeline that had been, I'm sorry, it may have been a gas pipeline, but uh, a pipeline that that was perceived that it had been targeted by uh, people, you know, goes to the fusion center and, and to the state and local law enforcement agencies and say, you know, help us understand what's necessary to, to protect our pipeline. And then you get a question, and this is independent of fusion centers, by the way. The the state and local law enforcement authorities have have the kind of dilemma that Mike's des- Mike describes every time when they have to decide what do you tell a private operator about the threat to to you know his or its property. Uh, so that's a classic uh, dilemma that that law enforcement uh, has. There's a separate matter in that. Uh, a lot of these uh, fusion centers, like uh, other parts of the government, state, local, federal, employ private companies to support them in their mission. And this rec- this ranges from everything from the people who maintain the computer systems. Uh, I suppose you could include the caterers, but th- that gets out to one extreme. Uh, but oftentimes they do employ companies to help them analyze data. Uh, and in that case, the companies are supposed to be operating under the supervision and control of the law enforcement authority. They are supposed to never have more authority than the law enforcement agency itself has and can only do the things that the law enforcement agency is permitted to do. There is a debate that that has gone on for years about whether uh, people who do these missions should be sworn officers of the organization or agency that employs them, uh, and whether the whole idea of contractors is actually a good idea. At the Department of Homeland Security, the Congress quite rightly pushed DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis to replace many of its contractors with federal agents and officers, uh, people who could be responsible under the codes of conduct and, and rules for handling sensitive and classified information that, that all federal employees are required to follow. And so, so the role of these contractors is supposed to be to provide a service that government is not able to provide for itself. Um, but one of the things that I think is a, a positive change is is getting people uh, who perform essential government missions to be government employees rather than contractors, wherever that can can you know be done under under the appropriate rules and regulations. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And both contractors and employees of Fusion Centers perhaps the ones that aren't coming from the law enforcement agencies, what are the backstops, if you will, to ensure that they don't have access to the counterterrorism databases of federal law enforcement agencies? The way it actually works, uh, most of the employees in fusion centers are state and local law enforcement people or are, are performing what is in local law enforcement is considered intelligence. Uh, I put air quotes around intelligence. Uh, in other words, they're they're not you know gun-toting, field-hardened police officers. They're people who've been hired for their analytical abilities, and they'll stay often in that kind of career path for much of their careers. But the purpose of these individuals is to to it's not to support policymakers uh, the way Mike described it. Um, there are people who do fill that role. And certainly it's possible for a report that's done in a fusion center to be of interest to policymakers. But most of what's done at fusion centers uh, are to support investigators rather than policy officials. Uh, especially at the federal level, there's a whole network of, of organizations and components, including the U.S. intelligence community, that provide support to federal policymakers. Uh, one of the things that was put in place when the fusion centers were set up was uh, the role, especially of the Department of Homeland Security, to try to figure out how do you not give everyone in, in every you know city and town access to highly sensitive sources of intelligence usually collected overseas. And so this entire process got developed whereby uh, in, information at a top secret level can be downgraded to either secret or, or official use only or, or even unclassified information. And this actually is what creates a number of the problems that Mark identified. So, for example, quite often a report that is hugely sensitive, you know, there's a terrorist plot to carry out an attack in a, a U.S. city. Will be will be you know redacted, processed, downgraded uh, in ways that protect sources and methods for how that uh, information was collected, but try to convey the essential nugget of what the the police department needs to know in order to try to disrupt the attack. So this is what is uh, one of the most important functions that DHS's. Office of Intelligence and Analysis is is staffed to try to provide. They aren't perfect. Uh, there is, as you would expect, a considerable amount of, of friction intentionally built into the system. 
it leads to to reports that sometimes people at the state and local level will wonder why on earth did they tell me this when in fact what they're actually reading is is a product that has had all of the sensitive parts of it removed leaving things that that you know to some uh, some people look like well this is obvious and, and i have to say yes i understand this is a a challenge uh, the process is, as I say, intentionally built in to have a lot of back and forth for the purpose of, of protecting sensitive sources and methods. In many cases, the actual value I've found of this kind of uh, reporting is that uh, the people who read it can have assurance that the people who are writing it are telling them the truth. In other words, they may not get the whole story, but the essence of what they're being told is something that they ought to be paying attention to. And if the process of, of uh, intelligence analysis and distribution makes its way down to the state and local level correctly, then, then in most cases, the police chief in the local town will say, okay, yeah, I got it. And then he can decide how to brief his individual officers before they go out on patrol uh, as to whether there's something they really need to concern themselves with or not. But uh, the odds are, uh, as we have actually seen in a number of cases, whenever there's a really serious plot with really serious consequences, usually that's when the FBI comes in to take the lead on an investigation and their agents have higher level security clearances higher level access. And, and often, as you've seen on television, there's friction between federal and, and local law enforcement. In this case, the fiction mirrors an occasional reality. But overall, this process has been very effective in disrupting a number of terrorist plots and attacks over the years, only a few of which make their way into, into public knowledge. But the process has, has worked Admittedly, as Mike rightly says, with some serious flaws and failures that you would hope would lead to corrections uh, in the process over time. Did you want to respond, Mike? Yeah, if we can go back to the private sector participation, because I think that is one of the major concerns. Uh, there's two kinds of private sector participation in fusion center operations. One is actual participation, and federal guidelines encourage state and local fusion centers to invite private sector participants, but they don't, don't have very strong guidelines for how to vet those private participants or how to incorporate them into fusion center operations in a in an appropriate way. And then there are also recipients of fusion center reports. Some entities within your community might get regular reports from the fusion center highlighting threats and who gets chosen to receive those reports and who doesn't is often a very politicized decision. And uh, Brendan McQuaid in Maine has done investigations of that fusion center and found that, you know, Basically, uh, big business was included on these lists and labor unions were not. You know, I worked at the ACLU and now work at the Brennan Center and feel that these are very important American institutions, uh, but they don't get invited to, to receive this threat information. So it creates a two-tiered society and that becomes problematic when you talk about the higher level participation because the Oregon Fusion Center actually work directly with one of these pipeline companies in characterizing protests against the pipeline company 
uh, as a national security threat to justify uh, law enforcement activity against them. This happened also in uh, during the Standing Rock protests where uh, the pipeline companies hired private security companies that actually were unlicensed at the time that engaged in a lot of provocative activities and was sharing information in the Fusion Center network that obviously is promoting a, 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 a certain view of the activities, presenting it as highly threatening. I remember one suggested because somebody in the encampment of protesters had a Palestinian flag, that was an indicator that Al-Qaeda or other foreign terrorist groups were involved in, in the protest. So this kind of sensationalized threat reporting that benefits the companies that participate in Fusion Center, it, it really risks uh, uh, equal application of justice throughout throughout our, our criminal justice system. Part of the problem of who gets invited in is that there are these ambiguous lines of, of authority. You know, one of the things that that's frustrating about Fusion Centers is they're very different. You know, in Los Angeles, the Fusion Center is actually located in FBI space and sometimes led by an FBI agent. So obviously their rules are going to be different from a Fusion Center that's uh, run by some county organization that's not even law enforcement. And the network is only as strong as its weakest actor. And if there's one entity putting misinformation into the network, that will surely make the people who, who take this threat information look at it skeptically. And again, we don't have to talk in generalities. We have these leaked reports. So, you know, we have Fusion Center reports from Maine, for example, that uh, warned that anti-fascists were stockpiling bricks near construction zones to throw at police officers. And when that leaked, the reporters sourced that to a white supremacist website who was who was putting out disinformation. On that point about sourcing, how much of this is an issue with there just being a plethora of information out there and Law enforcement, whether they be, you know, personnel in fusion centers or all the way up top at the DHS are sifting through just too much versus like they themselves harboring some of these beliefs. Because I take your point, you know, it doesn't look good when during a Black Lives Matter protest, you're sending as a fusion center employee something to higher ups that's sourced from a white supremacist website, but giving some level of benefit of the doubt, it also seems to me to be an issue of literacy online, that we just need to train these employees to be better fact finders and be able to sift through social media better. It's a huge problem. And, and you know, one of the problems with, with domestic intelligence collection over the last 100 plus years that, that uh, this is an activity the government has sometimes tried to get involved in is, is that by its nature, it's highly politicized, right? If I'm not conducting an investigation like I did as an FBI agent where I was looking for evidence of a crime and instead am trying to imagine why, what might be a problem in the future, my biases are going to color those perceptions dramatically, Right. Where if, if somebody is engaging in somewhat hostile activity, but they're promoting an idea I'm in favor of, I'm going to think, well, they're they're good people who are passionate about an issue of great concern, where if somebody is is promoting 
say, police accountability, the law enforcement officer might naturally feel defensive about that and think that these people are a threat. And, and you know, then you look at, at the reporting that actually goes out and like the FBI's black identity extremism memo that identified protesters who were black activists who were protesting police violence and racism as threats to law enforcement that you can imagine how that gets amplified through this system to the extent that when they see some wild statement online, it gets reported up as if it's accurate without any vetting. And, you know, to speak of the training, it's unclear if if many of these contractor analysts and even law enforcement analysts get any training at all, uh, much less who provides that training. You know, one of the things that we've seen is the nature of counterterrorism training, even uh, organizations like the FBI and Department of Homeland Security and Department of Defense were putting out, was highly biased against Muslims and Arabs and and produced a factually flawed analysis of what to look for. And one report suggested that a Muslim growing a beard was indicative of of, uh, increased dangerousness. And likewise, shaving off their beard was indicative of increasing dangerousness. So, you know, uh, identifying uh, dressing in Muslim garb or praying more often were indicative of dangerousness. And this false information that was going out really applies because the fusion centers became the hubs for federal collection of what they called suspicious activity reports, uh, which were basically the the product created through the See Something, Say Something program, which the Department of Homeland Security still promotes. And, you know, the analogy I've, I've tried to explain to law enforcement people is, you know, structure fires are a problem in the United States you know, we do a lot to try to prevent them. We have building codes, we have, you know, fire alarms and, and smoke detectors, but we don't have a smell something, say something program, right? We don't have, is that smoke? Call the experts. Uh, because we know that false reports dull response. And that's why it's Ill- actually illegal to pull a fire alarm unless there's actually a fire in many places, because we know that, that the number of false reports will dull the response. And yet we have a see something, say something program that the fusion centers participate in, in collating these reports from local law enforcement and pushing them up to the federal government. Uh, one, for example, from Northern California uh, was reporting that a Middle Eastern appearing male was buying a large quantity of water. Obviously, there's nothing suspicious about uh, or counterterrorism related about buying large quantities of water. Uh, And the reason that that whoever was reporting that saw it as suspicious was because the person had a Middle Eastern appearance. And yet these reports get sent up through the fusion centers into federal databases where the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force or other local law enforcement or Department of Homeland Security personnel actually go out and interview people. And they've produced these kind of signs of what to look for that that characterize things like photography or using binoculars or asking questions of a security person as inherently suspicious and related to terrorism. And of course, 99.9% of that activity is completely benign. But if you're reporting that kind of stuff constantly, it's easier to understand why on January 6th, federal law enforcement might have looked askance at some of this fusion center reporting. 
Let me first actually clarify something, because a lot of what Mike has just described isn't really a problem with fusion centers. It's a problem with everybody who, you know, isn't either trained or well-led, uh, who happens to find themselves working in a, a position of responsibility for trying to keep people safe. Fusion centers, with, with one important qualification, and I'll get to that in a minute, because Mike has rightly put his finger on, on this as one of the crucial aspects of why we should consider fusion centers very seriously. The, the biggest challenge you have in leadership in an organization that's responsible for security is understanding what is legitimately and seriously a threat or a risk and things that are innocuous and, and you know, not just constitutionally protected, but are, are you know, benign or, or indeed societally beneficial. A lot of what has happened, some of which Mike blames fusion centers for, but the problem uh, that he's describing is actually different from that. You know, we have had problems with educating, you know, law enforcement officials and the general public to the nature of, of what motivates people to become criminals or terrorists, uh, the incredibly varying reasons why people radicalize to violence. This is actually really tough. And it is absolutely correct, as Mike uh, has pointed to, that there uh, especially after 9-11, was a considerable amount of anti-Muslim bias uh, uh, because people would see folks as contributing to violence who had absolutely nothing to do with it and were, in fact, totally peaceful. And especially around the the protests after the murder by police of George Floyd in, in Minnesota in, in 2020, there was an enormous body uh, that was, frankly, fueled by people who had malign intent to try to, to suggest that there were all of these conspiracies going on when, in fact, uh, in most cases, these conspiracies existed in the eyes of the people who were advocating for this, not in reality. Where all of this came to a head is, is when the director of the FBI goes in front of congressional threat committees and gives what I consider to be an entirely accurate depiction uh, that Antifa uh, was not behind either the January 6th attack or a lot of other I instances that folks had tried to say, well, this is the response, this is the result of Antifa. Well, no, it wasn't. And, you know, in fact, you can find in FBI testimony, in any number of well researched, well written reports an accurate description of, of Antifa not being the uh, conspiratorial uh, source of enormous amounts of violence. That simply is not what the organization was, or even or to call it an organization is a misnomer. Uh, that's not what people who are using the, the self-identified term of Antifa were actually doing. You know, and this kind of thing goes all the way back to you know, McCarthyism and the Red Scare and uh, in the 1920s and a host of other movements where, uh, you know, there may be a kernel of truth, but it's never more than that. It tends to then get blown up out of proportion to, to reality. Uh, and conservatives as well as, as progressives have complained about this in some cases with justification. 
fusion centers are, are, again, with the one qualification I'll come to in a minute, are reflective of the society out of which they came, just like, you know, our other institutions are the, the reflection of, of the attitudes of the American citizens and everyone else who, who makes it up. The one qualification that, that is why it's worth giving thought to what are the responsibilities of fusion centers is actually what fusion implies. When, when you have a body of information that by itself, an ordinary human simply would not be able to process, then a lot of things will fall like dust to the floor. The purpose of a fusion center is to bring together people to connect things that the, whose connection might not be immediately apparent. Uh, and if a fusion center is run responsibly, that sort of thing will happen. Uh, and you will get the synergies. You will get people making connections to point to where drug networks are operating or, you know, in rare instances where there's an actual, you know, threat to, to security. It is, therefore, worth maintaining, you know, reviews and, and supervision of fusion centers uh, to make sure that they follow the rules and then separately to make sure that the rules are, are you know, responsibly written. And there will be tension and, and back and forth. People will chafe under rules. You, you will not always have these things be smooth. Uh, part of the way these processes are set up is uh, to try to gain the benefits of, of the ability of bringing people together to understand the real threat picture, uh, but then to make sure that they follow the rules that are established and are in place. In the summer of 2020, things got out of hand. Uh, they got out of hand at DHS. They got out of hand in, in Portland. And there have been any number of reports that have sought to try to correct those, those excesses. And that's why, you know, reports like uh, Mike are, are really required reading for people who want to try to understand how to make these things work better. But at the same time, I think, like everything else, and including like many of the reports that Mike was referring to, we've got to have a skeptical eye towards a, a lot of these things and to understand where any kind of report reflects the, the biases or prejudices of its authors. Critical reading is one of those skills that is absolutely essential for ordinary citizens, but especially for people in positions of responsibility over our law enforcement and security agencies. In the spirit of trying to make fusion centers better. Mike, why don't we turn to you here? You divide up uh, your recommendations into two buckets, reforms that you encourage the DHS to consider and reforms that you encourage Congress to consider. Can you explain a bit about what those reforms look like? Sure. Um, I, I agree with much of what Thomas said about how this is a bigger problem than just the fusion centers, uh, and there should be robust rules to prohibit abuse and effective oversight to ensure abuse is discovered. And that's what doesn't exist in this system. Uh, so th th this report is part of a larger series of reports on uh, reforming the Department of Homeland Security. Since the Department of Homeland Security provides federal grants to these entities, provides access to Homeland Security networks and, and resources and, and places personnel in these fusion centers, they have a responsibility to ensure that the fusion centers 
are protecting the American public. And uh, so we recommend that there is a a much more aggressive oversight of fusion center activities by the Department of Homeland Security. And one uh, particular issue that I just want to highlight because it was discussed is, you know, the problem that we pointed out in in 2007 uh, when I was at the ACLU was that the federal government was actually pushing the fusion centers to to reduce the the evidentiary thresholds for collecting and sharing information through this suspicious activity sharing requirement. You know, as Tom said, the the period of McCarthyism, there was the police intelligence focused on red squads, uh, you know, going after perceived communists in their communities and people whose political aspirations the police department thought was harmful to society rather than focusing on law enforcement. And the the federal regulation that was put in place to prevent that was 28 Code of Federal Regulations Part 23, which required a, a police agency to have reasonable suspicion of criminal activity before placing information in a shared criminal intelligence system. Uh, but with the suspicious activity reporting program, they encouraged a lesser standard for collecting that information. And and at the time, even some state and local police departments were having concerns because the problem with the network of fusion centers is that the rules are different for every fusion center or every state. So it's hard to have a system that, that works in a network. And it's really the responsibility of the federal government to raise the standards, not reduce them. Uh, so reestablishing that reasonable uh, suspicion requirement and ensuring that 28 CFR Part 23 is followed in practice and in spirit uh, is crucial to uh, limiting the, the uh, opportunity for error and abuse in these systems. Uh, further, we suggest uh, Congress should create a special inspector general to conduct an investigation of fusion centers so that we have a baseline idea of, of what these centers do, because part of the problem with, with the fusion centers is the, the federal government gives them money and resources. And then, you know, it, it says, well, these, these aren't the federal government, so they can do what they want. And that's not our responsibility when local governments often don't have the capability of doing the oversight necessary to ensure these fusion centers aren't engaged in misconduct, much less that the fusion center across the jurisdictional boundary isn't collecting information about the citizens in their community uh, improperly. So this special inspector general could go a long way towards identifying what are the problems with fusion centers and identifying if they can be reformed, how they can be reformed. And you know, some states are already talking about closing their fusion centers. There was a bill in Maine that narrowly failed last year and you know obviously because these are state and local centers it's it's the responsibility of, of of elected representatives in those jurisdictions to to determine whether these are are necessary or helpful to to state interests but it's incumbent to give people who live in those communities information that access to information about what the fusion centers are actually doing and that's where we're extremely lacking here where you know, we have to rely on, on, on leaks, basically, and investigative reports rather than government oversight mechanisms. So establishing those government oversight mechanisms, including a permanent mechanism, I think is really important to make sure that, that these are operating for the public safety and not putting the public at risk. 
Well, and, and Seraphine, here's here's the challenge because some of what Mike is describing actually does exist. Uh, in other words, there are people at the Department of Homeland Security whose responsibility it is to watch over the fusion centers and to assess their performance. I, I got to tell you, having worked at DHS, the the biggest challenge that INA has is it doesn't have enough of these people to do the kind of job that Mike is describing. Nobody does. Uh, the inspectors general are are equally overtaxed without enough people to provide uh, uh, the proper investigation and oversight of other things that DHS and indeed other departments and agencies are doing. And this was one of the shortcomings that became manifest during the Trump administration. Uh, I think Mike would probably agree with me on that. The challenge is just as we have been providing resources to state and local governments to set up these fusion centers and to encourage them through both financial support and other things to to operate them, the tail, if you will, of uh, what it takes to ensure proper oversight and supervision always struggles for funding. And, you know, I think one of the things that Mike's report usefully provides is, is an occasion to take stock of whether we have actually resourced the oversight mechanism uh, for fusion centers at the right level. You know, Mike and I may disagree on, on whether as a whole fusion centers are worthwhile or not, but I think there's a way of, of having oversight uh, without having micromanagement. And I got to tell you, having been there, the basics are in place. We've got to be able to make sure that we have people who have the resources to do the job that they're supposed to do. And then, and then you know, to make sure that, that uh, across the entire, both national and homeland security enterprise, we have an understanding that it actually takes money and people to keep the country safe. We actually have an understanding in the military domain that there needs to be this kind of a balance, even if people may disagree on, you know, for example, how big the the Navy should be or how many divisions we need to, to keep the country safe. We do not have anywhere near the necessary understanding of what it costs to keep the homeland safe from the kinds of threats uh, uh, that we now face. Uh, I'm not speaking of, of terrorism, uh, although certainly the case can be made uh, you know, for domestic violent extremism work being underfunded. Uh, but across the Homeland Security enterprise, I think there needs to be an assessment of, of you know, do we have the resources for the job that we expect our frontline officers to, to do for us to keep us safe? On this point of reforms, I I want to end with this question for both of you. So a couple of days ago, the House of Representatives created a subcommittee to basically investigate law enforcement biases against conservatives in the United States. What are your thoughts on how this might affect the way that law enforcement thinks about the reforms that the two of you just laid out? Because on the one hand, it seems like the representatives agree with your point, Mike, that the way that the law enforcement is collecting and disseminating information and intelligence is questionable, even unethical. But their concerns aren't motivated by protecting the civil liberties of minority groups or of activist groups on the left. 
their concerns are that they want to protect the civil liberties of members of their own base. So is there a risk then that, you know, even down to fusion centers, we'll see employees give intel on far-right groups, perhaps the benefit of the doubt, or maybe even turn a blind eye to the sorts of activities that some of these groups are perpetuating. So anyone who would suggest that law enforcement is biased against conservatives hasn't spent a lot of time in any law enforcement office. Law enforcement is a very conservative profession that attracts very conservative-minded people. Uh, the institutions themselves tend to be very authoritarian. And uh, even when somebody might not come to the uh, organization with an authoritarian mindset, certainly that gets uh, drilled into them. So this has been a longstanding problem of bias in law enforcement, targeting groups that are advocating for social change uh, rather than groups that are engaged in violence. And, And I would point anyone interested in examining this to other reports I, I wrote regarding the, the, the FBI and the response to far-right violence and the deficiencies in, in the FBI and DOJ's approach to it. Um, but one highlight is that the FBI today doesn't know how many people white supremacists killed last year or the year before that or the year before that. You know, anytime somebody, a uh, journalist, talks about increases in white supremacist violence, I always ask them what data set they're looking at, because there is no official data set. And just a few months ago, the Senate Homeland Security Committee issued a report criticizing the FBI and Department of Homeland Security because they refused to collect domestic terrorism incident data. So they don't know how many domestic terrorist incidents occurred in the United States or who committed them. Uh, Likewise, the FBI said they could not produce prosecutive data from their domestic terrorism program. So my concern is that we would miss an opportunity to do objective analysis of what's wrong at the FBI and DHS and these other intelligence agencies and how they're harming the American public rather than engage in partisan sniping on each side of the issue. You know, when when I looked at the statements made by some of the FBI whistleblowers that are being highlighted by Representative Jim Jordan, uh, who's apparently going to chair this this committee, one of the things they talk about is how the lower standards for intelligence collection have allowed the FBI to target people with no evidence that they are posing a threat. And they're upset that that standard is being used to conduct intelligence investigations of conservative activists or others in, in the conservative political spectrum. And I have those same concerns. And, and you know, as long as we're looking at who else they're targeting with these lower standards, because it points to the obvious solution, which is raise those standards to the standards that, that the FBI worked under uh, when I was there that proved very effective in my own experience, being able to separate people who are engaged in speaking and writing and, and uh, uh, going to protests versus people who, are, who I had evidence were actually engaged in some kind of criminal activity or were planning it. In, in almost all cases, uh, law enforcement organizations recruit from their communities and therefore tend to uh, pick up people with a range of views. It is true that opinion polls have shown that, that 
uh, law enforcement tends to lean conservative, but it's not as as extreme as some might think after what Mike has just said. That having been said, the thing that's most important, as in so many other cases, is is good leadership, uh, responsible leadership, training and education to make people, whether they're in law enforcement or, or any other similar function, really have the right level of, of, of understanding, knowledge, and instincts. You know, a, a good uh, uh, BS detector is one of the most valuable tools for any law enforcement official or indeed for any citizen. I, I think this is why, you know, it was so disappointing that we couldn't come up with a, a much better approach on civics education that everyone could agree on. I'm, I'm not sure what to make of the uh, plans for, for a congressional investigation. There is the, the sort of concern that when you look for something, you tend to find what you're looking for. I think what, what I believe is going to come out of the next several years is a heightened awareness on the part of, of uh, American citizens generally that they need to take these issues much more seriously. Uh, and that uh, it really is important as a country uh, that we try to have a, a better understanding of, of what the real threats and challenges are and that we not be distracted by, you know, the phantom menace, uh, whatever it might be or wherever it might come from. You know, in some respects, the democratic process is a corrective to these things. It needs to be uh, watched, it needs to be preserved, it needs to be nourished and cherished. And I think the election that we just went through shows that, that uh, you know, the, the American people can center themselves in ways that, that really do show what the strength of this country is. Uh, there are clearly problems. The problems need to be addressed squarely and honestly, uh, but without blowing them out of proportion. Uh, and so I think it's really right that we look at all of our institutions and make sure that they are doing the job that we ask them to do. We can respect the the courage and sacrifice it takes to to keep our country safe and secure, uh, honor the service of of people who who protect us at the state and local level as we do in our military and elsewhere, uh, and then make sure that they have the tools and the training and the leadership to do the job right, because I know that's what people are, are proud to see. Uh, and I really do think that's what the country is entitled to have. Michael German and Thomas Warwick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mike. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osbind of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.